0: Hello again, welcome to Tell Me. My conversation on today's episode of Tell Me is with Dr. Jake Deutsch. He's a friend of mine, and he got his start in emergency medicine. He had some private, urgent cares, and he's now taking his practice in the direction of longevity and wellness and the future of healthcare. We had a great conversation. We have a similar interest in that way, that we're interested in the evolution of medicine, healthcare, and longevity. So lots of good stuff in this conversation today. I hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Me. Hi, Jake. Hey. Thanks so much for doing this, too.
1: My pleasure.
0: So one thing that I am obsessed with lately, and we had dinner the other night and we talked a lot about, is the whole biohacking stuff and the future of healthcare and maybe where we think it should go, where it should be going, where we as potential patients or human beings, how we should be thinking about healthcare in the future. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, you got to kind of talk about what does the term mean? It's like a buzzword, biohacking. But, you know, do we really even have a clear definition that people can apply? So I think of it as anything that we do to affect our biology. It could be as simple as taking more steps and increasing our metabolism and hopefully losing weight, but it could also be advanced where we are using devices which are on the cutting edge in terms of our health and understanding it, or using things like supplements to improve our nutrition. All of those things together fall under this umbrella of biohacking, and it has become, I would say, like you said an obsession, it's changed the paradigm of what we know healthcare to be. 20 years ago, everybody was empowered to kind of know about their health, talk to your doctor and ask questions. And that idea that whatever the doctor says you do and you don't challenge it was a big step forward. And I think that this concept of biohacking and changing our biology is another big leap forward within healthcare. People are trying to basically experiment on themselves. Anytime we do something to you know sort of challenge our health, hopefully for the better, that is in a way an experimentation. And I love it. It's my own personal philosophy about what I do for my own well-being and longevity. And we're just seeing this tremendous change about prevention, about about getting ahead of your health, not just fixing problems when they become a disease, but understanding what we could do to avoid it in the first place.
0: Thank you for that. I talk a lot about that. You know, the goal is to not have to go to the hospital. Obviously, the hospital is a wonderful place if there's an emergency and we need in in terms of things like surgery and things have to be removed or whatnot. But the goal really should be to keep your health in a state where it's not an emergent situation. It's so interesting that you put supplements in there. Biohacking for me is like a relatively new term. Like I've just kind of become made aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't necessarily, in my mind, equate supplements with it. But the way you explained it in your definition was perfect. It's anything that's altering your biology.
1: Just to put an example to the picture, vitamin D. It is an epidemic that people have low levels of vitamin D in the United States. There's more and more people that are you know choosing not to have dairy product and also avoiding the sun. And if you live in an area where there is less sun, there is an issue with people having very low vitamin D levels. And that has an important factor for our immune system, for hormone synthesis, and actually taking a vitamin D supplement is a way to correct that. And that's really what we're talking about on a simple level and understanding that you should be pushing your provider to make sure that you're checking your vitamin D level. And you should be understanding that what's a normal range of 30 to 100 nanograms per deciliter may not be optimal. And, you know, we'd like to keep it in my practice over 70. So that's where this idea of being involved and sort of taking it into your own hands, I think is a really important concept, even with something as simple as a vitamin D supplement.
0: Now, I take two D supplements. So while you're on the subject of D, can we talk about it? Because I take a prescription D2 mm-hmm. and then I take a store-bought D that I've been taking every day since the advent of COVID. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the differences and importance of each?
1: Yeah, just certain forms of it have different bioavailability, meaning they are absorbed differently and have slightly different functions. So typically, an over-the-counter would be more of a D3, but there are subsets of that. So when people have particular deficiencies or, you know, really struggling to get their levels up, we may include those other categories within that plan as well.
0: I see. Okay. So if you got your D levels checked, then a doctor would tell you you're deficient in this and instruct you accordingly what to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always try to emphasize to people, have a discussion about laboratory results in a way that is interpreting the ranges. because. We talk about interpreting it because there's a quote normal range, and anybody could read that printout and say, I'm in normal range or I'm out of normal range. And that's like learning a language. But to be able to speak it and interpret it and understand it is a different thing. And that's where those normal ranges is really based on experience and practice. So, you know, you may have a practitioner who's only following those guidelines and, you know, doesn't really move beyond that. But what might be better for you is interpreting them with higher level of optimization, meaning it might be in a different range that's better for you. So I really encourage people to, you know, speak with your doctor, like what is their practice? Are they interpreting them or are they just sort of checking off those boxes? And, you know, sometimes it's finding a practitioner that's more into functional medicine, getting to the root causes, you know, sort of practices with a different approach to interpreting lab data than, you know, the doctor that your parents saw 40 years ago. And also, when you're looking at lab values, it's incredibly complex. And obviously, that's why you want to rely on somebody who's experienced and, and not just been doing this yourself. But are you looking at not just one time frame? You know, when we check levels in the morning and we're fasting, we may get one point of data. And then later in the day, we might get another point of data because our body is responding differently. And it might be important to kind of understand the highs and the lows. You know, if we're looking as a great example at like a beach and trying to understand when the ocean moves in high tide, we just don't look at the high tide. We kind of understand both areas, particularly when there's you know a problem that's going on. So it goes back to this idea of the interpretation and going beyond just typical reference ranges for labs.
0: Going back to the biohacking, with respect to levels, as you just mentioned, one thing I've just became made aware of that I've ordered that I'm really excited about is this glucose monitor. Mm -hmm. I'm not diabetic, but since I turned 50, it's definitely harder for me to eat whatever I want. And so I want to make sure that I'm maintaining my levels and I want to see what the sugar is doing to me. And keeping my stomach flat and all of that. And so I've ordered a glucose monitor because I want to wear one of these and I want to see what happens. I try to be careful and like my idea of sugar is dark chocolate. So I'm interested in these glucose monitors and, you know, looking because there's an app on your phone and you can really track and see what's happening to your blood sugar when it happens, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. And I've also ordered an Aura ring mm-hmm. so that I can trace my sleep and see what's happening with that. So I'm so into this right now, just like seeing what my body's doing and how it's responding with this technology.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the glucose monitor, I think, is probably one of the best examples of how we can understand our biology and how we can change that. You know, just to clarify, it's a small sensor that's implanted onto your skin. Typically, people wear in the back of their arm, and it's generally for a two-week period. And what it does is it detects your blood sugar on a continuous basis. So instead of poking your finger five times a day, this is actually telling what your blood sugar is doing minute by minute, if not more frequently. And what we learn is what makes our blood sugar go up when we eat and we have carbohydrate particularly, and then how long it takes for it to go down. And we want to see that fast recovery time as an indicator that our body is responding to these carbohydrates, we're putting out insulin, and it's being effective. That insulin is making that blood sugar is being utilized, and it's not just kind of floating around in our bloodstream. I have two dogs playing behind me. (laughs) So what we learned from that is really this concept of insulin resistance, if we have a difficult time processing those carbohydrates, and it allows people to really pinpoint what they eat and what your body is doing. A perfect example is with carbohydrates, for instance, brown rice actually causes blood sugars to spike more than people realize. However, all the time I see people that you know choose brown rice when they're having, for instance, sushi, because it's healthier. So when people use these devices, they start attaching real data, real information about those choices, and that makes change. So you start to see these patterns. Wow, if I am going to, you know, indulge in that dark chocolate, this is how long it's going to take my body to recover. Maybe I'm going to have a little bit less of that, or maybe I'm going to do it right after I work out where I can see the recovery faster. And the other part that's really fascinating is you can actually see when your blood sugar is doing when you're not eating. And people get into this mindset that we have to eat three times a day and I can't work out on an empty stomach. I need to carb load beforehand. And if we really want to get into a fasting state and start burning fat, Actually, doing something active when our blood sugars are primed to burn fat when we haven't eaten can be quite effective. But what happens is mentally, we're not prepared for it because what we've traditionally done. And if we can quantify it by looking at our CGI, our monitor, and see that our blood sugar isn't going too low, then it puts something that is very tangible with that process. So I think that it's fascinating. And, you know, when we talk about prevention, if every American who has family, history of diabetes or is developing pre-diabetes or signs of what could lead to diabetes, this should be an option so they can do the same experiment, that they can then look at what's happening when they eat and put real value with choices. Because what happens is, you know, you're going about your life. What should I have for dinner? Should I have pizza or a salad? And you're like, "Ah, what's a little pizza going to hurt? You know, so allowing people to really attach information to that choice has a big effect on change, and it empowers them to kind of do differently. Unfortunately, insurance companies say we don't see the value of teaching people that, of preventing. What we see value in is prescribing medications once people have developed diabetes and all of the financial gain of people being sick, which is really a messed up way to kind of be approaching healthcare.
0: Yeah, completely backwards, but true. I agree with you. That is exactly what they do there's such a psychological piece, right? So I haven't done the glucose monitor yet. I'm waiting for it to arrive. But how I heard about it was my friend is doing it. And he was like, it's just so amazing. Like I can look at the app and I can say like, I'm not having that ice cream after dinner. I'm not doing that because I literally see in my mind what I saw on the screen of my phone when I watched my glucose spike after I ate that ice cream. So there is such a psychological component Mm -hmm. and seeing that information, seeing it with your eyes, what happened you can't unsee it.
1: We're working on subtle, long-term changes. And when we have that ice cream, you don't overdose, like if you took a bunch of drugs. But what you're doing is, is you're poisoning your body in just a small amount. So if we can, you know, make it visual, then that is really powerful. And unfortunately, what we do traditionally is we do what we are used to doing, and then we go see the doctor once a year, and the doctor says you're showing signs of pre-diabetes. Work on this, and then you go back in another year and think about all those times. It's the holiday, my kid's birthday. You know, I'm stressed out. Cheat, 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 and there's really a disconnect. Connect between that long-term damage and those specific situations that we make those choices. And so to me, I always emphasize for clients, it's little reminders. The information that you got from the CGI, it's that little thing about sleep that you took from your aura ring. It's working with your health coach and all of these little reminders add up. If we're only having one point of contact with our provider once a year, that's not little reminders. You know, that's like throwing an encyclopedia at you and hoping that you're reading it every day, which is just not an effective approach to overall healthcare.
0: Right. There's like this weird shift also that's happened. There's two different things going on, right? We have this incredible movement of people wanting more information about their body, about how their body responds to things. But then we also have this really very valid movement of body positivity, right? Mm-hmm. There's such a real sort of, I don't know if it's a dichotomy or contradiction or what you'd call it.
1: People can, you know, look great on paper, can look great in a photo, but be, you know, quote, rotting on the inside because their cholesterol is through the roof or their prediabetes or their They're using drugs that are harmful. So it works both ways. And yeah, we have to be careful about making people feel like perfection is the goal. That is absolutely not. What we're trying to get people, in my mind, is try to move to those healthier choices. Think about that long term. But yes, obesity is a real contributor to diabetes, to hypercholesterolemia, high blood pressure, cancers, respiratory problems. You know, we can't ignore that. We also don't want to, you know, make people feel that they are somehow not succeeding in life if they struggle with obesity. But let's empower people. Let's give it that education. Let's let people, you know, make choices, you know, learn about this in a way that is going to be helpful for them to make those changes.
0: And there are different body types. Not everybody is meant to be super thin either. I experienced so much trauma in my early life. I was naturally freakishly skinny mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I couldn't explain it. Don't understand the amount of times I cried because people thought I had an eating disorder. I would do red carpets, whatever. And the shit the tabloids would say was like crazy about me. I have an eating disorder, this and that. I mean, Listen, even on my show, even playing a doctor, they would be like, you have to wear a T-shirt under your scrubs because you look painfully thin. Are you eating? Is there a problem? I mean, there was a point where production got me a meal service because they thought that I had an eating Disorder, but it goes across the board for all body types. There is such a thing as people who are naturally thin, and not everybody's meant to be naturally thin. And there is such a thing as people who are bigger and who are just meant to be bigger. As long as you're being healthy and not partaking in any sort of self harm, you are an individual and your frame is built the way your frame is built.
1: The other thing I always emphasize to my clients, because we do a body composition scan in the office, so it allows us to figure out muscle mass, bone density, and percentage of body fat. That is just one point of information. So having a very low percentage of body fat doesn't mean that you're in good cardiovascular shape or that you have good strength. And those, you know, are also equally as important for our overall health. You know, muscle resistance training is so important for building blocks of our biochemistry, our hormones, and, you know, helps with preventing osteoporosis and just has such an important long-term fact. And also the cardiovascular part of what I'm talking about, you know, is also critical to our overall health. So we can't just look at the situation of your health or assess people's health by a photograph by what you look like in social media. You know, there's a lot more to that. So, you know, I think that this whole concept that ignoring all parts of it, you know, and just saying, oh, if I'm a certain weight, that's what I'm supposed to be, is missing the whole picture. We have to put it all together to really have a good understanding of people's overall health.
0: That's why this new direction we're moving is so exciting and empowering because we can all use these devices or these different methods to get information and empower ourselves, right? If we have the information, we can sort of empower ourselves and take things into our own hands and come up with a routine that we like that is also good for us. You know, I know a lot of places like, let's say, for example, food deserts, right? Places in this country that are devoid of healthy grocery stores and options. They don't have organic options and there's not a lot of places to go get healthy food there's a definite socioeconomic element to some people in food insecurity and they struggle with things like that. So you know what I absolutely love? They're expensive, I'm sure, but people have these garden, these grow gardens, like in their house mm-hmm. with the lights and it's a self-watering situation. But I think to my point of taking things into your own hands.
1: Not everybody has that access to good quality food that is ideal, but there's ways to interpret what you do have. And one of the things that I always Always try to get my clients to do is food log. So, you know, actually I take photos of your food, and that's a form of biohacking in order to really understand what you're eating. Because people are like, yeah, I'm doing a good job. But, you know, really, what is going into your mouth every day? Because I look at food as medicine, as many people do. And you wouldn't use medicine that was toxic, or you wouldn't take medications that were potentially allergic to. So why are we not looking at food in that same way? So empowering people, no matter where you live, what your socioeconomic background you're in, to make those food choices the best that they can be and utilize those tools that don't cost you anything. You know, there's certainly lots of resources where you can use some of these concepts or speak to people, either through telehealth that are inexpensive nowadays, so you don't have to be in New York City to have access to this type of expertise. And I think that even something as simple as intermittent fasting is something so simple, But it's not well understood and it's something that we probably could educate people more about and break this idea that we need to eat three times a day and that our body is going to be deficient or starving if we don't. So I think that there's ways that everybody should have access to this and that should be our goal. Like biohacking should not be an elitist effort. You know, it should be just the same as good basic healthcare. I mean, how do we expand upon that for everybody?
0: Yeah, I love that. The evolution of healthcare really is what it should be. You're absolutely right. It shouldn't be an elitist. It should just be an evolution. And that's part of why this conversation is happening today, because you and I wholeheartedly believe this, that we do need to revolutionize or evolutionize the way we think about healthcare, the way we think about ourselves. I was doing this Zoom series called Healing Healthcare to sort of have a conversation between healthcare workers mm-hmm. and give them a platform to talk about things that they struggle with. But I had an episode with functional medicine doctors and the woman on the call, she said something fantastic that I never forgot. Eat the rainbow, which is just like the simplest, best thing I've ever heard. And I say it to my kids all the time and it makes a tremendous difference. And we circle back to that psychological piece. Just eat the rainbow. Like if your plate is colorful and there's so many different foods For example, like I love radicchio, which is like this beautiful purple lettuce, right? Mm. But she really stressed the importance of like all the purple vegetables, like purple cabbage. Like I always go for like the green cabbage, you know, if I'm making tacos or whatever. If you have access to fresh fruit and vegetables, hopefully you do, you really do need to incorporate all those different colors on your plate. And that's just like a simple, easy way to think about it. Like I never eat purple cabbage. Well, maybe you should eat purple cabbage once a week or whatever.
1: The topic of diet in general is so important because we could eliminate such a significant portion of diseases or reverse them or improve outcomes if that was emphasized. And, you know, you can't make it boring. You can't make it punishment to eat. Like, as kids, we should be learning about healthy choices, exciting ways to, like, put that together. Our taste palette should be grown to like that. The reason why processed foods become everybody's go-to is because that's what our palate ends up liking, you know, when it becomes used to that. So we have to really think about how to change that in the big picture. And I'd much rather see doctors spend time with their patients about diet and nutrition versus side effects of prescription after prescription. I think that that time is way more valuable.
0: Yeah. I mean, anyone who's spent time in a hospital, like the food in the hospital is just abhorrent. I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) The food. That should tell you everything thing right there is hospitals are about the bottom line. It's only about money for them. I mean, not to diss doctors. I'm not saying doctors. I'm saying hospitals. You know, the hospital as an institution, as a business model is about money. It's about the bottom line. And to make a comment about intermittent fasting, to go back to that for a minute and three meals a day, let's also not forget why breakfast was created. You know, in Europe, they don't really eat breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. They have a coffee and maybe a little pastry. Right. Breakfast was created in this country, as far as I've been taught, was because we were trying to sell pork products. We were trying <laughs> to sell food, right? Because in the United States, this is a capitalist society, economy, and it's great for a lot of things. But agriculture became big, big business, mm-hmm. and the pork products, the meat products, and the eggs. And I think I saw a documentary about in the fifties when they started, you know, making these commercials about breakfast, eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have these like cartoon pictures of bacon and eggs. It really was just to make agriculture a commodity and to sell products, and everybody sort of fell for it.
1: I mean, it's called breakfast so that concept of fasting especially if you're doing it overnight is you know the meaning of the term it should be called like skip fast or skip break you don't need it for most people i mean of course you're a kid and you're growing there's a different story. But for most adults, mixing that up and having less of those calories, which are maybe not as important, in order to have your metabolism challenged and kind of be stressed in a way so that it thinks that you you know need to be more efficient is actually a really good thing. And certainly I agree, You know, the industries that are driving a lot of this commercialization, their interest is profit, not for health. So we have to kind of figure out where our focus is. You know, if it's our health or for following some sort of rule that we've always grown up with.
0: Yeah, I intermittent fast every day. I make sure I drink a lot of liquids, a lot of tea, a lot of lemon water, green juice every morning, Mm -hmm. which may technically be breaking a fast if there's a green apple in my juice and there's sugar. But again, I'm just trying to not ingest food and I keep myself super hydrated every morning and then I typically eat at noon.
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of calories is not going to completely offset the benefit from it, but doing it a couple of days a week, you know, for many people, that's a lot. And I always try to emphasize, if you're working on your diet, try to just subtract. Don't calorie count because it's really hard. It's really annoying. You know, like nobody really wants to be measuring things while you're going out to dinner. That's kind of weird. But if you could say, you know what, I know dessert is usually 400 calories or a glass of wine is 150 calories. I'm going to eliminate 450 calories a day. That really is an easier way for people to try to get a plan in place. And part of that can be that intermittent fasting a couple of days a week there you go. You already have your calories deducted. You're one step further along in terms of achieving those goals.
0: That's one of the things I love about like I have, you know, a 12 year old and You know, TikTok is a thing and there's a lot about social media that's, you know, not good. But one of the great things about social media and about TikTok is these recipes. You know, people make the best recipes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like cool salads that people make and cool dressings and stuff like that that people make that I love. The other thing that I've started doing, which is very fancy and sounds very fancy, but it actually isn't but I want to talk about it. I want to get your read on it and see what you think about it. I started doing cryotherapy And I go to this great place. It's called Paws. You know, a cryotherapy machine is quite scary to look at it. Like Mm -hmm. it's a refrigerator, basically.
1: It's a freezer. Yeah, Yeah. a freezer.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And you do it for up to three minutes. And there's a couple of different levels. I'm really like not amazing at it. Like sometimes I'll stay in there for a minute and a half, two and a half minutes. I often don't do the full three minutes because I'm like, I'm already standing in this freezer. That's badass enough for me. I don't need to do the three minutes. But I feel in incredible on the mornings when I do it. How do you feel about the benefits of cold therapy? Because for me, it's a game changer. As soon as I get out of that cold therapy, Mm -hmm. I literally feel like I could run a marathon. (laughs) I've never felt so good in my life.
1: Yeah. So there's kind of two major parts to this. There's kind of what you feel. And then there's the science that we can attach to that. So people have for centuries, like in January 1st, gone and jumped in the ocean, you know, like we've seen those pictures and those videos. And part of that was to symbolize like the new year, but other parts of it was to kind of get that feeling that you're experiencing. And when we go from, you know, a temperature that's normal to very, very cold, it causes a cascade of mechanisms within our body. And that results in basically improved health when we have things like variability of our heart rate. And those are the issues that we can measure. So we get endorphins released. We have positive brain hormones, like serotonin that's released. And that is what you're actually feeling. And so we can appreciate that as an individual. But what's really great in terms of the biohacking is we can measure this quantifiable data, particularly with our heart rate, which we measure as our heart rate variability. And that's an indicator of how well our body responds to stress. So we actually like to see high heart rate variability, meaning it goes up and recovers quickly. And oftentimes doing these practices like cold plunges or cryo is a good way to train our heart rate to have greater variability. So we actually can measure that. And we see that people who have greater heart rate variability live longer, have better outcomes in terms of their overall health. So that's one of those measures that we're looking at in this biohacking space. So I'm a big fan of it. And like you said, you don't have to pay a lot of money. A cold pool works, cold shower works, you know, kind of going back and forth is actually, my preferred method. So you're kind of getting into the cold, going back to the warm, getting into the cold as a repeated exercise in order to really stimulate your body to respond to that stress and then become more efficient and kind of function as a better overall being that we are. And, you know, it's something that's not only with that cold exposure, all sorts of stress So, when we are dealing with our kid that's being difficult, or our boss at work that makes the skin on our neck stand up, those are stresses too. And so, all of these little factors and how we respond to stress and how quickly recover are a part of this measure. So, if we can train our body to deal with it and sort of put it through extra little stresses like that, it has this very powerful effect. You know, it's like, running to train for a marathon, you know, you do little smaller measures and you you sort of build up to it so that you have this overall ability to function for that ultimate marathon goal.
0: That's a really interesting way to look at it. I never thought about it like that. So I think you talked about this on your Instagram. Didn't you talk about The heart.
1: The heart rate variability?
0: Yeah, the heart variability.
1: Yeah. So some of these devices actually measure HRV. So, you know, a lot of people don't quite understand it. And it seems almost intrinsic, like it should be low. It shouldn't be high. But we actually want to see a high variability, a quick recovery. And that is a better indicator of overall health. So the Aura Ring measures it, Apple Health, Whoop all of those are able to capture your heart rate variability and you know by the way these devices are just the tip of the iceberg, we're probably going to have very simple implantable devices that get all of this. And it's not just this device measures X, that device measures Y, you know, you're kind of trying to put it all together yourself. I anticipate that in the future that there will be simplified applications that pull in 20 different data points, pull in laboratory information, and it's all living in like a hub for us and actually is like a dashboard for our health.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned something with respect to the cryo and managing stress and how your body reacts to stress. So I think through our day, we have whether it's microaggressions, like you said, a boss, a coworker that makes you crazy. All of this is stress that your body absorbs, right? So let's talk about for a second, that stress has to leave, right? If you've absorbed stress in your day, and then you go home, that stress is still in there, right? We have to release it somehow, correct?
1: I mean in theory, but there's many people who don't, and that can cause generalized anxiety, that can cause blood pressure. We don't completely understand it, but we do think that there's relationships between our stress hormone, cortisol, and other disease states. So having high levels of cortisol causes us to gain weight, contribute to ultimately developing diabetes, may have a risk factor for cancer. So, you know, that stress, while it's very difficult to measure it. And know if we've released it there are ways that we can measure cortisol in our body but again it's not accessible you know most people don't have access to measuring a 24-hour cortisol which is the gold standard to understand that hormone which is crucial to our body's function when it comes to stressors.
0: Yeah, and that's your adrenal glands, correct?
1: Yeah. So, you know, people who have adrenal tumors can have high levels of cortisol, which presents pretty clearly with disease manifestation. But as, you know, we are in a constant state of stress, just sort of being Americans in the modern world, there is a big degree of people who have cortisol dysfunction and it's undiagnosed because typically blood tests that doctors would do in their office measure what we call a random cortisol. So it's one point, but we see a particular pattern of cortisol throughout the day, which rises in the morning and slowly goes down. And if we can collect cortisol throughout the day. So typically we do it either through saliva or through urine collection. That allows us to really understand if a person's cortisol levels are falling within range or there's some abnormality throughout the day. And unfortunately, you know, most insurance companies don't pay for that type of testing. So, you know, people are left to having to go to specific labs where they pay out of pocket to get that information. But I deal with clients who are having difficulties with sleep who have other hormone dysfunction, you know, are dealing with just not feeling great, gaining weight, sleep apnea. And we look at the cortisol component of it. And that's one of the three, you know, sort of big hormones that we can look at. And we determined that there's actually this irregularity that if we can address, if we can kind of correct, we see everything else fall into place.
0: Yeah, it's all the knee bones connected to the shin bone. Right? <laughs> It's all connected. So I hear a lot of women with thyroid issues. A lot of women I know. And can you talk about iodine? And I take, I don't know, once a month, once every couple months, whenever it is, I have a bottle of iodine. Mm -hmm. And I just put a little dot on the inside of my wrist because we don't get iodine, right? I mean, I guess if you eat a lot of shellfish or something.
1: And table salt has it. But yes, people are reducing their salt intake.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So the thyroid is such an important part of our physiology. I put it into one of the three major categories of hormones, our thyroid, our cortisol that we just talked about, and our sex hormones. And the thyroid, if you understand it, is like a thermostat for our body. It's controlling our metabolism. It has important functions for just our overall health, our immune system, and issues with thyroid abnormalities, you know, can be subtle and, you know, can be pretty difficult to correct. Women tend to have more thyroid issues than men. And that's not completely understood, but it probably has to relate to the different physiology and different hormones that females have versus males. But understanding the thyroid and really looking at it with, again, a correct interpretation of the laboratory value is something that's not traditionally taught in medical school. So many times, what doctors will order is one test, which is the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, and use that as an indicator if the thyroid's okay. And And that has a normal range. And if that falls in normal range, your thyroid's fine. But what we know is there are sort of a sluggishness that we can see with thyroids, which might be subacute, hypo, low thyroid. And we need to really look at the other components of the thyroid hormone cascade to understand really if there are some problems. And the main components are T3 and T4, and they convert back and forth, and it's iodine that helps. So the T3s are active, our T4s are stored, and we need iodine to get that out of storage. So that's why taking iodine can be helpful because we can kind of get more into the circulation that can work. But you know, just taking iodine may not be necessary. You know, more importantly is having a practitioner that does the appropriate tests and really understands what's going on with your thyroid in an understanding of your overall physical state. You know, do you have weight gain? Do you have hair loss? Do you have brittle nails? You know, signs of thyroid dysfunction. And then looking at those numbers critically and then coming up with a plan. And by the way, beyond even the basic tests, which, you know, now more doctors are doing that complete thyroid panel, there's other even more sensitive tests like antibodies for thyroid, which can be an indicator of autoimmune diseases that could be affecting thyroid thyroid as well. So, you know, if there is a consideration for thyroid disease, getting that complete investigation and really going beyond the basics is absolutely what I recommend because it's pretty complex. It can be corrected. Most doctors kind of just have this knee jerk of they give the same medication and there's lots of options out there that can be effective. And knowing what those options are and having a plan that goes beyond, I would say, the knee jerk reaction is really important for people.
0: Do you meet a lot of young doctors, like just coming out of school?
1: Of course. I mean, when I'm dealing with residents, those are the people that are training.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you see that they're being trained differently than you were trained? And what advice could you give people that were maybe on a medical path?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the most difficult challenge for people is there is a little disillusion that exists within medicine, you know, that people have gotten frustrated and, you know, have let the system kind of bog them down. But I always tell young doctors or med students or nursing students, if you love it, it doesn't matter. If you love it, your love for medicine is going to transcend all of that nonsense. So don't get caught up in that. And if that's what you're taking at an early stage in your career, then maybe it's not the right choice for you because you're falling into that trap. That really isn't what medicine is about. You know, medicine is about that awesomeness the privilege the you know real magic that is like nothing else so if you're not tapped into that, if that's not what speaks to you, you know, maybe think about what your motivation is. But I love working with young doctors. I love mentoring, training residents in the emergency department when I was seeing patients there. That was always exciting because you could see the spark. You could see this little bit of yourself when you were in that period of your life. And the people who stand out to me is who I always try to be. I, you know, I always think like this person could potentially for the rest. Of their career, remember what you said and apply that on a regular basis. And that's pretty impressive. You know, that's pretty cool to have that kind of impact on people's career and life in general. So I love that. I mean, that's why I use social media as, you know, a way to kind of get the message out about medicine. You know, I think that we're seeing a lot more people wanting to go into medicine because of the pandemic. Applications for medical schools are up. People are dedicating themselves to nursing, even just being a medical assistant or other. Their functions which weren't valued before. I think that there's this renewed enthusiasm and appreciation that the pandemic has shed light on. So I think that that's incredible as well. So it's getting, I think, better for people to go into medicine. It's still really competitive though.
0: It's funny because on the show, we're playing this storyline about the physician shortage, right? And the lack of people wanting to go into medicine. And particularly on social media, you're seeing a lot of like nurses talk about burnout and the way they're treated by hospitals. And, you know, there is a lot of arguments against people wanting to go into healthcare because bottom line is it's a very meaningful path Mm -hmm. is stressful and as difficult as it is It's a very, very meaningful path. And I think to give your life meaning and have passion for something is ultimately the goal, right? To do something with your life that's meaningful. At some point, you're going to get to an age where more likely than not, you're going to care about how you're impacting people and what kind of an impact you have on this planet.
1: That's so true.
0: How did you get into medicine and what inspired you as a young person?
1: So, you know, my training is emergency medicine. I thought I wanted to go to medical school. My brother's a doctor. I always kind of wanted to do what he did to, you know, make sure that I was in my parents' approval, I guess. But I was a lifeguard. I was training to be a lifeguard when I was 15 years old and somebody collapsed outside of the YMCA and I performed CPR on him. And I saved the guy's life, ultimately, like he actually was one of the few people that have a dysrhythmia and actually survive it, made it to the hospital and was discharged. And I received an award and got to go on this amazing like helicopter ride around with the EMS system for Atlanta, where I lived. And that was the real spark. And so I knew I wanted to do this. I was following my brother's footsteps. But you don't really know what medicine is going to be like until you actually get your feet wet. You have this idea. But, you know, when you're taking organic chemistry and it's just miserable, you think, is this what medicine is going to be like? So, you know, luckily, I kept my head down and finished my studies. And every point along the way, as I got closer to interacting with patients, it got that much better. And then once I started to, you know, really get into the practicing medicine part, it was game over because that's really what I love. I love taking care of people. I love communicating with them. I love, you know, all of that, which was the clinical care side of it. But it's really difficult because for people who don't have any experience, they may never understand that and they may be dissuaded because the path to get there is really difficult. So, you know, I always try to encourage people to do something that's going to get your feet wet, volunteer, work in some sort of role where you can't necessarily be a nurse, but maybe you could be a clerk in the hospital and you would you know kind of see what that looks like. And people who've done that, I think, have the best outcome because they know that this is what makes sense for them and they already kind of understand what practicing medicine really is about.
0: I have a friend, Dr. Michelle Harper. She's also an emergency room physician. And she wrote this great book called The Beauty and Breaking. I had her on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And emergency room work is a very specific adrenaline rush of its own.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I did my residency, when I was doing rotations, you know, you do surgery. I liked it. I did OBGYN. That was cool. Internal medicine. Everything was great. But when I did my ER rotation, I remember thinking, "This one's different." And I wasn't looking at the clock. I couldn't wait to get in the next day. So that's how you kind of know, like, that's what you should go into. But you know, it's an imperfect specialty because it is intense. It's unforgiving. You take care of somebody who's had a, an acute heart attack attack and they're whisked away in you know 30 minutes and that's your job is to get them in, get them safely to the intervention which they need. But it's not like they're stopping to say thank you. And there's also a lot of nonsense that happens in the ER everybody on their worst day goes to the ER. And a lot of times they don't need to be there. And so everything gets piled on there. But when it's a real emergency, when you're really making a difference, like we do so often, it's exceptional. And, you know, nobody feels bad about a day's work you leave and you turn it off. That was also what really attracted to me that I wasn't going to be on call 24-7. You know, you got to disconnect it. But what's really interesting about my career, you know, so I've owned a bunch of urgent cares, which I sold. I I have another business where we do infusions for people with chronic illness. And now I'm in this longevity and anti-aging space. And, you know, you think about an ER doctor as kind of fixing problems when they're at their worst, whether it's an appendicitis or heart disease or a stroke. And now I'm really grounded in that prevention. So, you know, I think that there was something really not subconscious. It was like this reaction to being in the situation of dealing with the end state and the disease and trying to apply my skills and focus on the prevention and avoiding the ultimate for what I'm trained to do.
0: That's the other thing about life in a career that is... So fun is the evolution, right? Where you start is not where you're going to end up. And if it is, that's okay. But one of the most fun things is seeing where your experience takes you, how you evolve, what your evolution is.
1: And you know why that happens is because you follow what interests you, your dreams.
0: Right. And you keep growing and learning.
1: Yeah. If that's your state of mind, then it just sort of happens naturally naturally. Which, you know, I would have never imagined to have the degree of entrepreneurship, which I do as a physician, but it's exciting. And, you know, I'm already thinking about, you know, we talked a little bit about like, what's that next step? Because I think that there's just so much that we can learn. And that is the challenge that kind of keeps me getting up every day. So it's an important lesson for people going into medicine because as easy it is for people to say, Oh, there's not enough staff and it's so hard and it's so thankless and you're underpaid. You know, there's also so many avenues and opportunities and sort of caveats which could lead you to incredible things.
0: What it is right now doesn't necessarily have to be forever, but it helps to walk before you can run. And all of these things that you go through or that you study or that you learn or that you practice or that you you encounter, they all prepare you for what's next, what's to come. Mm-hmm. You know, listen, you're crushing this thing called life. Uh, thanks. You're a successful doctor. You're evolving in your practice and how you're looking at medicine. You have a successful relationship, marriage. You're crushing it on all levels. So I really admire and respect you.
1: Well, let's also point out that there's also, you know, the typical struggles that everybody has. So being stressed out about work, dealing with all life's pressures. You know, I don't want anybody to think that that's not part of the equation, too. And, you know, we're all human. I think that it's really difficult for healthcare providers in general to like sort of be on a pedestal or have some sort of different standard. You know, unfortunately, we're also people, too. So I just think that that's an important message to get out there. But I did want to share how we met because I just think it's such a ridiculously funny story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Of course. Yeah.
1: I mean, so I'll just kind of jump in is we met at a friend's house who who is obsessed with playing charades in a militant way <laughs> where like, you know, you're told to show up at 7:30, and there's an end time at 9:30.
0: And I hate game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was sitting next to you and I had no idea who you were because I had never watched the show. And so I just remember sitting down and you introducing yourself and I said, hello. And you just said, what do you do? And I said, Oh, I'm a doctor. And I will never forget your response. You're like, oh, I'm a doctor too. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember like comparing notes. We actually like sort of went down like, do you know how to intubate somebody or if you needed to perform a procedure, would you actually be able to do it? And you were telling me some of the different medical terminology that you've picked up along the way. And I just thought it was so funny that we shared this connection that was, you know, ridiculous but it brought us together. And you know, I have to say, like, it's been this great friendship. We got to know each other better, been able to share information, you know, whether it was during the pandemic or this. And, you know, I think that we have a lot of similar values and interests. So I have to say, you know, thank you to Harry who set us up on that charades evening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you, Hairball.
1: <laughs> I love you. This was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.